Mark chapter 7, verses 1 to 23. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honours me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honour your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. There are a few things that will turn someone off quicker than hypocrisy, eh? Uh, Our God hates hypocrisy And the Lord Jesus warns against hypocrisy and he exposes the hypocrisy of the religious leaders over and over and over again he does it. Now, unsurprisingly, an excuse that many people give today for rejecting Jesus is the church is full of hypocrites. You know what? In in some quarters, that's true. Uh, And at times, I've heard a rather witty response to that statement where they say, well, there's always room for one more, so you can come to church too. You'll fit right on in. 
And there was a time I used to think that that was a pretty good witty response because it does identify the fact that, well, we Christians, we're not perfect. We are forgiven. We're just forgiven. But now, as I read the scriptures, such as today, I'm not so happy with that statement anymore. It doesn't seem so witty and quite so true. Because if I, as a Christian, or we as a church, are known for our hypocrisy, there is something seriously wrong in our relationship with God. Think about that for a moment. If you or I, as Christians, or we as a church, are known for our hypocrisy, there is something seriously, seriously wrong with our relationship with God. Now, most of us would be pretty familiar with the phrase, giving lip service only. It's where somebody says one thing with their words, but their actions or their lack of action shows where their priorities really lie. Our politicians and our celebrities are famous for giving lip service. Um, We see it all the time. And isn't it annoying when we see it? They come out and they speak out about these things, but you know by their lifestyle that they're not doing anything to help it. A, a, a modern phrase that gets used to describe this is something called virtue signalling. Have you ever heard that phrase used? Virtue signalling. It means I say something to portray to the world how virtuous I am. This is my view. Isn't it wonderful? Whereas what we actually do is entirely different. But did you know, do you know where that saying, giving lip service only, comes from? It comes from today's Bible reading and from a similar statement in Matthew. Jesus said to the Pharisees and to the scribes, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honours me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Lip service is to honour God with our lips, it's to sing praises, it's to pray or whatever, while our heart itself is a long, long way away from him. Today's Bible reading is about, well, it's about the difference between paying lip service to God as opposed to what true worship really is. So let's set the scene. Jesus has just fed the 5,000. He's walked on water. He's healed the sick. And so the Pharisees and the scribes turn up. Uh, By the way, um, the Pharisees, uh, they're they're a lay movement. They weren't trained um, in, in religion and whatnot, but it was a purity movement or a holiness movement amongst the ordinary old people, okay? Um... The word Pharisee literally means separated ones. They would separate themselves off from anyone or anything that they thought would make them unholy. And these people come together with the scribes, and the scribes were the more formal scholars, if you like, of the scriptures. These were the trained theologians who studied God's word, and and they knew the religious law inside out and back to front. Right? So these religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes, They'd obviously heard about all of the stuff that Jesus had been doing and all of the miracles. And it seems pretty obvious that they've come to Jesus not to embrace him, but to pick, pick, pick Jesus to pieces. Jesus, you do this wrong. 
You do that wrong. You're not doing this and you should be doing that. Now, they've already turned up in the past and, and um, criticised Jesus over a few other various issues, um, such as when he healed people on the Sabbath and when the disciples walked through the wheat paddock on a, on a Sabbath day and just picked a few heads of grain and rubbed them out and blew them out and ate it as a snack. Ooh, your disciples, they're doing work on the Sabbath. And when Jesus ate with sinners, Jesus, you can't do that. That'll make you impure. And when Jesus forgave sins, Jesus, you can't do that. And they had a go at him also because his disciples didn't regularly fast. All of these things, the disciples saw as evidence that Jesus wasn't a fair dinkum prophet, that, that Jesus hadn't come from God. Because if Jesus was sent by God, then Jesus' disciples wouldn't be constantly falling well below their own standards. And so they just pick, pick, pick. You do this wrong. You do that wrong. Don't you hate it when people do that? Well, that's what they were doing to him. And here in this reading, it continues. Verse 2. They saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Now, we all know there's some really good hygienic reasons for us to wash our hands before we eat our lunch, don't we? We know that. Um, particularly if you're working with stock, you know, you've got to wash your hands, otherwise you might end up with anthrax or some nasty thing like this. Now, I should know all about the, the benefits of washing my hands before I eat because my good wife, Robin, is an infection control expert. Um, and in a hospital setting, Trying to get people to wash their hands properly is essential. If you don't do it, you pass germs on and people get infections in their wounds and all sorts of pathogens get transmitted. And for us, living out here in St George, where we get to watch Imparja, uh, we should know all the benefits of washing our hands before we eat or before we nurse a baby, for that matter. Here's an example. Billy, can you click? Yeah, Oh, you have a dirty nose. Did you wash your hands? You need to blow your nose before you touch the baby. Good girls. Clean hands will keep our babies healthy. Did you wash your hands? No hands on me. Ooh, ah, ooh. No germs on me. Don't you just love those ads, eh? All right, so for health and hygiene, it actually is really important for us to have a bath. It is really important for us to wash our hands. But I want you to know something. You know that old saying, cleanliness is next to godliness? Did anybody's parents ever used to say that? It used to be an old saying. Cleanliness is next to godliness, you know. Guess what? It's simply not true. You can tell your parents that, that your pastor said that. The greatest picture of godliness is the last thing that you want walking across uh, the floor that you've freshly mopped. The last thing you want standing on your favourite rug. Because the greatest picture of godliness is the very messy, flailed flesh 
and oozing blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Cleanliness has got nothing to do with godliness. Nowhere at all in the Bible does it say that cleanliness is next to godliness. But for the Pharisees, hand-washing for them wasn't about hygiene. It was a religious tradition that they claimed kept them holy before God. Now, they didn't even wash their hands properly. Um, it was a religious act that they did. All they had to do was have about one and a half eggshells worth of water. Now, that's not much, is it? And they would pour that over their hands. And you'd have to be very careful that your hand was pointing down as you poured it so that the water would dribble off your hand because if your hand was that way up, all of the, all of the filth would run down onto your elbows. And, and this was just something they did to satisfy their tradition. So where'd their tradition come from? Well, under the old covenant, that is before Jesus, the temple was the place that was set apart for God. And the priest from the tribe of Levi was set apart to be holy and to serve God in the temple. And at various times, the priests had to have this ceremonial washing. At, when there were certain sacrifices about to happen or at their ordination or whatever, there was just, just the priest, not everybody else, just the priest had to have this ceremonial washing. And likewise, there, there were times when people who weren't the priests also had to have this ritual cleansing, um, such as people who had accidentally touched a dead body or somebody who had eaten something that they shouldn't have. Now, this wasn't a regular occurrence, unless, of course, you were the local undertaker. Then you'd probably have to wash your hands every day. But for the Pharisees, their whole national identity was bound up in some kind of perceived purity that they gained by separating themselves off from everything else that was profane, right? So they believed that they in themselves were pure and that they were holy from the inside out. And they believed that it was things that was external to them that they might happen to come into physical contact with that would defile them and make them unholy. And so, for example, if they went to the marketplace, well, who knows who they might bump into at the marketplace? They might bump into a Gentile. That's, that's somebody who's not a Jew and, ooh, they're dirty. Or they might have even eaten pork in the last month. And, <gasps> and so after they'd been to the marketplace, they'd come home from their shopping and they'd, they'd have a wash just in case they'd actually bumped into such a creature. But in their eyes... It wasn't only the Gentiles who were unclean. It was anybody who didn't live up to their standards they viewed as being unclean. And so to them, Jesus was unclean because Jesus ate with sinners. To them, the disciples were unclean because they didn't wash their hands properly. And these Pharisees refer to the tradition of the elders. That's what they call it, the tradition of the elders. Hey, Jesus, how come your disciples do not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but they eat with defiled hands? Uh, let's be really clear here. This is not a requirement of God. This is not something that a law that's written down in the Torah that they have to follow. In the time of Jesus, this was an oral teaching, something which had been made up by man 
and it'd be passed by word of man from man to man. But sometime after Jesus, probably around about 100 years later, I think it was, somewhere around about that, it was written down in what's known as the Mishnah. And the tradition was solidified even further. But Jesus calls it out for what it is. This isn't a commandment of God. It's a tradition of men. You know what, even in the church today, there are traditions of men that can very easily get in the way of what God's doing. And traditions of men can make it harder for someone to connect into a church. For example, the requirement to wear a tie to church is a tradition of man. It's not God's law. It's obviously not a tradition here. Uh, but in some churches, it is a rule. If you're not wearing a tie, you can't fully fellowship. You certainly wouldn't be allowed to preach. A second example, it's not so much a rule now, but when I was growing up, all hymns had to be played on the organ. Choruses could be played on the piano as long as you did it before church started. Because once church started, you didn't have choruses then. It had to be hymns and they had to be played on an organ. And you certainly could never use drums because that's the devil's music. Right? That was just a tradition of man. God never said that. Same thing with the teaching of the Sabbath. God's word tells us not to work on the Sabbath. But the tradition of men says you can't even play sport on the Sabbath. I, I think I've told you this before. When I was growing up, uh, the Presbyterian minister's daughters weren't allowed to come out and have a bit of a bash of tennis with us after church in the Arvo because they classed that as work. It wasn't even fixtures. It was just a bit of hit and giggle. But no, couldn't do that because it was the Sabbath. That's a tradition of man. In some churches, you'll be told, unless it's the King James Version, it's not the real Bible. Guess what? That's a tradition of man as well. We have traditions of men in this church. We mightn't even recognise them as traditions of men. To us, it's just the way we do things. But I pray that if any of our traditions ever put any kind of barrier up that prevents a person from engaging with Jesus, I pray that we would recognise this straight away and we do away with that tradition. Somebody once said, tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. Do you get what that's saying? Some traditions are good. They start out as a personal act of worship and faith. This is the living faith of somebody. So let, let me use the example of wearing a tie to church. There may have been somebody in the past who used to wear a tie to work. And he did it because it showed respect and honour to his employer. And it showed respect and honour to his customers and clients. When it came to church time, it was like, well, maybe I should wear... I'm, I'd like to wear a tie to church because this is the way I'm going to honour God. And for that person, it, it is his tradition. And it, and it is an example of his living faith because it's an expression of his own worship of God. 
And that's fine, because that's a living faith. But if that tradition of that one person becomes a rule that everybody else has to follow, well, it's not an expression of a living faith. And this has no part in God's church. Living by the rules of traditionalism is an expression of a dead faith. Remember how I introduced today? If you or I as Christians or we as a church are known for our hypocrisy, there is something seriously, seriously wrong with our relationship with God. And you know what that wrong thing is? It's a dead faith. The actions of a living faith spring from the Holy Spirit within. A dead faith likes to have a whole list of rules and regulations to live by. In fact, it needs that because it doesn't have the inner urging to love God and express that with what we do. And so it needs a list of rules and regulations. But the problem is when we get a list of rules and regulations, it doesn't take long before we start trying to push the boundaries of those. I want to know exactly what the rule is so that I can step right up to that boundary and just not quite cross it. And then, of course, we start looking for loopholes. And that, my friends, is the seedbed for hypocrisy. When we, when we set all of these rules and regulations and, right, that's what we're going to live by, and you have to live by them too, but then we try to find a loophole around them. So, yeah, I haven't actually broken the law. And so Jesus makes a charge to these Pharisees. You leave the commandment of God and you hold to the tradition of men. And the Pharisees, they did this in all sorts of ways, but Jesus gives them here one specific example. In other places in the scriptures, he gives them other examples. But the example he gives here is he takes them to the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments make it very clear that we should honour our father and our mother. And of course, in their culture, a very large part of honouring their parents was looking after them in their old age. Now, let me tell you, look, looking after your parents in their old age takes commitment, it takes time, and it takes money to look after your ageing parents. And they're not here today, but I'm sure that Jake and Lauren and Ben and Francis are really looking forward to looking after me and my senility when I start to drool. But I, I also promise them, it's okay, I'm going to keep eating all the wrong things so that I don't live too long. But, but it seems that the traditions of the scribes and the Pharisees um, was such that they then tried to make loopholes to get around the law of God. And there's a bit of a loophole created here with respect to your parents. Don't want to have to look after your parents when they get old? No problem. We've developed this thing called Corban. What's Corban? Well, if they dedicated themselves and all that they had to God, they didn't even have to physically give it to God, right? They just had to dedicate it to God. It meant that nobody else had a claim on it. I and my things are dedicated to God. So I'm sorry, I can't help you. 
sorry, mum and dad, I can't look after you in your old age because I've dedicated myself to God. That was the loophole that they'd created. That was the tradition that they had made up. And what did that tradition do? It just completely negated a very important, important commandment of God. And Jesus is saying to them, you're worried about people who aren't living up to your traditions. But your traditions themselves negate the very word of God. What do you think is more important? And Jesus goes on to show them that they've actually got everything completely the wrong way around. They thought that they were pure on the inside. And it's only those other external factors that they might actually come in contact with them that would make them unholy. But Jesus turns all of this completely on its head. Verse 14. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Now, you and I probably understand this very well. But for the disciples of Jesus at the time, this, this was something radically different to what they, their religion and what their culture and their mum and dad probably had been teaching them for many years. It was the way of things. And Jesus comes out with this radically different statement and so they needed a bit more explanation. And Jesus says, what? You lot don't get it either. Can't you see that what you eat doesn't go into your heart? It goes into your stomach and your intestine and your bowel and you poo it out into the toilet. Now, I hope I haven't offended anyone with that rather crass way of putting it, the translation according to Michael. But I do want you to know that's what the Greek actually says. Um, our English translations have tried to sanitise it somewhat and make the words of Jesus sound less crass. But when it says stomach, in the Greek the word is colon, from which we get our word colon, which is the last bit of the bowel before the anus. In the Greek, it actually means your belly or your gut, your innards, the whole lot. Your whole digestive tract. And then when our English translations end up by saying, and it's expelled, well, the Greek continues on with another three words to come. The English ignores those three words completely, thinking, oh, you get it. You, you know what's, what it's saying here. I don't need to say it any further. But in the Greek, it goes on to say, ice ton ephedrona, which is into the toilet. It literally means it goes out into the latrine. So I hope the language doesn't offend anyone too much, but Jesus was being quite blunt here. What we eat it doesn't make us holy. What we eat doesn't make us unholy. Because it doesn't go anywhere near the heart. It goes through the gut and into the dunny. By the way, that's another tradition of men. Uh, my mum probably would have given me a smack for saying the word dunny, but that's just the word for toilet. 
just the Australian version. If you're American, you'd probably say the bathroom. Verse 20. What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. You see, the Pharisees had it completely the wrong way around. They thought that they were pure and others rubbing off of them, that, that the other people rubbed the bad off onto them. Now, by the way, that's the perspective of many people today, including many sociologists and many psychologists. Many people have the view that people are born good. Yeah, there's nothing bad in a baby. And they believe it's only circumstances that they encounter through life that make them bad. Rubbish. According to Jesus, the human condition is we are all born bad. It comes from the heart. What's the evidence of this? Because out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, and all of that other stuff. Where does it come from? It comes from the heart. Jeremiah, an Old Testament prophet, said in chapter 17, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's the human condition. Isolating ourselves doesn't save us from evil. You could cut yourself off from the whole wide world and you'll still have evil thoughts. And even if you get to that point where you've cut yourself off some, from so many things and, and you work on it really hard and you, you start thinking, now I actually think I'm getting there. I used to covet a lot, but now I don't see much stuff anymore. I don't covet anymore. And I used to deceive people, but I don't deceive anybody anymore. And, and I, I actually don't think about evil stuff much anymore. I think I might be getting there. Guess what? You've fallen straight into pride. And your heart has deceived you again. It's true. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? We don't need isolation to make us holy. We need a heart transplant. When we repent of our old wicked ways and give ourselves wholeheartedly to Jesus, and I choose that word on purpose, we give ourselves wholeheartedly to Jesus, he takes away our deceitful, desperately sick heart and he gives us a new one. He gives us a heart that's controlled by his spirit. This is what we call being born again. When we're born again into Jesus Christ, he gives us this beautiful, godly heart. Now, before we finish... I just need to backtrack a bit because I did skip over something that's actually quite significant. 
In verse 19, Mark adds a little note. Thus he declared all foods clean. Under the old covenant, there were all sorts of cleanliness laws, um, things that people of Israel were allowed to eat or weren't allowed to eat, things that they were allowed to touch or weren't allowed to touch, things they were allowed to do or weren't allowed to do. Now, what would it mean for us today if you and I were still living under the old covenant with all of these cleanliness laws? Well, for a start, it would mean that I wouldn't have been allowed to have bacon for breakfast like what I did. It would mean that when you went fishing, you could keep the yellow belly and eat that because that fish has scales and fins. But if you happen to catch a jewfish, well, that'd have to go back because... Yeah, it's got fins, but it doesn't have scales. Um, you wouldn't be allowed to eat prawns or yabbies because they don't have fins and scales. Most of us would probably have a bit of a problem with our clothing today because most of our clothes would be a blend of cotton and some other yarn, whereas you're only allowed to wear something of, a, of one blend, one, one yarn, not a blend. Um, and keeping all of these cleanliness laws along with circumcision and the keeping of the Sabbath, is what distinguished God's people of Israel apart from all of the other nations. That is what set them apart and identified them as being God's people. But here's the thing. Through Jesus Christ, for us, this is no longer the case. Keeping of the law in terms of all of this religious cleanliness law isn't what keeps it, isn't what sets us apart anymore. What sets us apart now? It's the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That's what sets us apart now. In Jesus Christ, we aren't set apart by the keeping of the rules don't eat, don't touch, don't wear. The Holy Spirit living inside of us, produces the fruit of the Spirit, the good stuff, which is the righteousness of God. And that's what sets us apart. You see, that's the difference between trying to be a better person and being a better person. Has anyone here ever tried to be a better person? It's hard, isn't it? But you know what? Jesus changes who we are. He takes away our old heart, that deceitful heart, that heart from which evil arises. He gives us a new heart filled with the Holy Spirit. So let's come back to where we began. If you or I as Christians or we as a church are known for our hypocrisy, there's something seriously, seriously wrong in our relationship with God. Disciples of Jesus are not known for their hypocrisy. We've had to change a heart. And I mean this in the most radical of ways. You know, often we might say, oh, so-and-so had a change of heart. We just mean they, they changed their mind about something. But the change of heart I'm talking about here is a radical spiritual transformation where God takes away our old evil heart 
and, our Holy, and his Holy Spirit comes inside of us. And so true worship isn't lip service only. It is a life surrendered to God, demonstrated by godly living that comes from the heart. Now, some people don't understand this and they try to continue and trying to justify their evil, deceitful heart. For example, in, in all of the debates over the same-sex marriage and other moral issues that get conducted out in the public over the last few years, the argument often gets raised is this. You Christians, you eat bacon and prawns. You wear clothes made out of two different types of material. You plant two different types of crops side by side and you cross-breed them. You work on the Sabbath. What's wrong with you, Christians? It seems like you just choose which parts of the Bible you want to believe and which parts you want to discard, right? That's the logic that they take. The logic that they take is you don't keep all of these religious cleanliness laws. You, you tell us that they're all done away with. So why can't you ditch the moral law? Well, let me tell you something. Jesus never set us free Sorry, Jesus set us free from having to keep the religious cleanliness laws. But he never, ever negated his moral law. God's righteous decree of what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is evil, has not changed. It has never changed. It can never change. But even so, for disciples of Jesus, even the moral law should not remain a set of rules and regulations that we have to try and keep and push the boundaries of and try and find loopholes for, because that would be another expression of a dead faith. That would be another expression of giving lip service to God. A life truly submitted to Jesus embraces the righteousness of God, not because we're told we have to, because it's law, 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 law. We embrace the righteousness of God because it's a desire which wells up inside of us. Now, I suspect that most of you will know what I'm talking about. As God quickens our consciences and he tunes our conscience so that we start to see the same as what God says, what is right and what is wrong? And, and I go to do something, I go, I can't do that because that's just wrong. It would be wrong for me to do that. Or you see a person who, who needs help and you would normally just walk straight past them, but there's something inside of you that says, show that person a bit of love. And it might be completely out of character, but you just stop. And you go and you help that person. Are you doing it because it's rules that you have to follow? I hope not. We do it because the Spirit of God inside of us is expressing himself through us. A life truly surrendered to Jesus and the Spirit living within leads to a life of worship as God intends. You know, we often think of worship as being this thing where we sit down, we come to church, 
And some people even designate worship as that singing bit. Do you know what? Yeah, that is worship. But it's only a small part of it. The worship that God wants is godly lives. The lives that we live, radiating God out and the love of God into the world. Well, we don't just give lip service. We don't just say one thing and do the other. Because we love Jesus, we love his righteousness, and we live by his spirit. So much more than lip service. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, I don't think there's any of us here who would deny that more than once, and probably more times to count, and many more times than what we can remember, we have been guilty of hypocrisy. God, forgive us. God, forgive us for when we have been a people who have just given you lip service, when what you want is our hearts. And Lord, we give you an invitation. In fact, we beg of you, Lord, come into our hearts right now. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Lord, may the fruit of your Spirit, your love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness, all of, all of the fullness of you and your character, Lord, I pray that this would radiate out of our lives and that we would be able to live our lives as your people in this world. Lord, may we not be characterised by hypocrisy, but by the fruit of the Spirit. Lord, we surrender ourselves to you wholeheartedly. We ask that you would take this deceitful, wicked heart of ours and rebuild us anew with a spiritual heart. In Jesus' name, amen.